Welcome to the Barry Dunn Medicaid Insights Podcast. During this podcast, we cover timely and relevant updates related to Medicaid trends, systems, and policy considerations. My name is Peter Alfrey, and I'm here today with Rachel Moss Capper and Ethan Wiley. Rachel, Ethan, and I support state Medicaid agencies with their different enterprise system, policy, and program initiatives. Today, we're going to talk about a recent state health official letter that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services put out regarding the planning for the resumption of normal state Medicaid, children's health insurance program, and basic health program operations, which will come at the, upon conclusion of the COVID-19 public health emergency. The recent CMS announcement provides guidance on what the approaches state should consider to begin resuming normal business operations before the end of the public health emergency. The topics we cover in this podcast are timely, and we anticipate that there could be some changes in the future on this matter. So please keep checking back, and we'll report on those changes as we know them. Just a quick disclaimer, the content we are covering in this podcast is based on our experience at Barry Dunn, supporting states with efforts related to Medicaid operations during the COVID-19 pandemic. We do not speak for CMS, nor do we have the ability or authority to do so. We are sharing our current understanding based on the clients we support and the information we have learned supporting these clients. So with that said, let's get into the podcast and the conversation today. So I wanted to welcome Ethan Wiley. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Just to start the discussion, I was hoping, Ethan, that you could give a little background on some of the different flexibilities that state Medicaid agencies sought at the beginning of the pandemic. Sure. And it seems like a long time ago now, we're in April of 2021, but really I think as we're going to talk a lot about today, there's been a lot of changes to the eligibility and enrollment requirements. And along with that have come a lot of different system updates and a lot of changes that have kind of come one on top of another. And there's really some unwinding to do at this point. They were primarily focused on things like 1135 waivers, uh, 1115 waivers, disaster relief, state plan amendments. But as we've talked about a little bit already, they've kind of piled up on top of each other now and there's a need to reverse what were hoped to be temporary flexibilities when the public health emergency ends. And now that we can kind of see a faint light on the horizon, you know, CMS has released the state health official letter back in December. And that gives a lot of guidance to states on steps that they're going to need to take and activities that are going to need to get underway that are going to be needed to resume the normal Medicaid after the end of the PHE. So understanding that at the beginning of the pandemic, state Medicaid agencies went after the different flexibilities, the waivers, state plan amendments that you talked about earlier, and understanding that there was a uh, time crunch to make the changes off the flexibilities, but in many cases, the states didn't have actual approval um, on those requests. Can you talk about that gray area where states had to address the needs of their member populations, but how did they manage doing that when they didn't have official approval from CMS? The real great flexibility the CMS gave to states, particularly with things like waivers and state plan amendments was the ability to backdate them essentially. So a normal state plan amendment, you can't have, L, you know, for example, say L, you can't have it taking effect in the past. It has to be after it has been approved. Whereas with the state plan amendment under the uh, 1135 authority, the disaster authority that we're talking about here, 
um, states could actually put things into practice, whether it was rate changes for providers, the associated system changes, um, and then upon approval from CMS actually have that covered going back to when they started. So in the state health official letter, and for those who need a reference, this is number 20-004, which you can find at cms.gov. There is a lot of information, uh, a lot of what Ethan just covered, um, but also a lot of timeframes and, and specific areas of operations that state Medicaid agencies need to focus on. So Ethan, I was wondering with all that information and limited resources and just many, many priorities at a state Medicaid agency these days, where do they need to focus first? Where do they need to uh, start planning? And what are in your mind, uh, some of the top priorities as they start rolling out this set of requirements? I think for something like this, that is big, it has a lot of arms, it gets into a lot of areas of Medicaid. The challenge with that long-term is that because the timelines are still in flux, when we take a step back and we realize that Medicaid agencies and all of these flexibilities coming from the same place that they do, it's really important to take kind of a holistic uh, top-down view of your whole Medicaid enterprise to kind of understand, okay, how are we gonna tackle this thing? Now, when CMS first came out with a state health official letter back in December, I remember very vividly the sense that, you know, we've kind of been down this road before. It really reminded me and I think a few others that I talked with at the time of the ICD-10 implementation back in like the 2014, 2015 timeframe. Um, you know, that was something that we knew was coming, was coming for a long time, had a lot of different implications in a lot of different areas of Medicaid. But by the time it came down, States who were most successful with it, and by and large, everyone, um, I think, was because it was a very successful implementation, uh, found that all of the planning, the, you know, the operational readiness reviews, the impact assessments that were done with vendors, the policy reviews, the, the lesson learned there, by and large, was plan early, really start the conversations with vendors early. You know, what's the data elements that are going to be needed? What are the reporting components that are needed going to CMS? Which vendors are impacted and who is talking to who? And really, who's in the driver's seat? Who's doing the coordination? And I think states should identify that now. Thank you. So when the COVID-19 pandemic began, states through the flexibilities that Ethan talked about were looking to expand services ranging from telehealth to substance use disorder services to behavioral health and really looking to meet the needs of, of the population through, through the crisis. And obviously eligibility would reach the top of the list and uh, just really enrolling members and, and changing and modifying eligibility terms per the program. So with that said, I wanted to invite uh, Rachel Moss Capper to the to the conversation. And based on the letter from CMS and the recent guidance, what are some things that state Medicaid agencies need to look at from an eligibility standpoint? Sure, and thank you, Peter. And as both you and Ethan have mentioned, um, one of the major areas of impact is the eligibility enrollment process. And actually after the public health emergency ends, uh, states are being asked to complete uh, any backlog of their COVID-related pending eligibility and enrollment actions and to resume their routine operations uh, under five different areas. 
I know Ethan had mentioned um, the tool, the planning tool, and these this information echoes that planning instrument. So one of the five areas is the applications. And then we have the post-enrollment verifications, redeterminations based on change in circumstances, renewals, and the Medicaid fair hearings. So, you know, circling back to those different areas, um, just to kind of give some timing perspective, um, the applications are for any, you know, certain states may have decided to, you know, stop applications altogether or uh, change their timelines for a period of time during the PHE. Um, if they have any kind of, again, backlog or pending applications, they will be expected to get those all caught up within a two to four month window uh, after the PHE ends. And then the post-enrollment verifications are for any states that took flexibilities regarding uh, the acceptance of self-attestation uh, information. And now they'll have to go back to being able to verify all that research within, again, six months following the PHE. Uh, redeterminations is going to be a, a bigger category for a lot of states. That's for if they halted um, either for a period of time, again, or throughout the entirety of the PHE, their redetermination processes they're going to be expected to resume those uh, within six months of the PHE ending. And same for the renewals. So anyone who has not had a renewal of their eligibility within the PHE timeframe that should have will be expected to come back on board within six months of the PHE ending. And lastly, again, was the fair hearings. They're asking this one's a little different. Um, they're just asking that when the PHE ends, that states begin processing fair hearings again if they hadn't been already. So uh, using a prioritization approach that states are moving forward with those once the conclusion of the PHE has occurred. So Rachel, with all of the different eligibility determinations across the populations, I imagine this presents a challenge for state med Medicaid agencies to manage the data and to track the status of their beneficiaries. I was wondering if you could talk about that. Sure. You know, some states I'm sure have different ways they've done it, but some of the folks we've talked to have done a combination of a universal tag that they have applied um, to all, you know, COVID related enrollments during this time period so they can find them quickly. Um, some folks are having to combine that with existing manual reports or existing renewal reports. So they're just going to capture groups as they would cycle out of the system. But the, the date that they may have those things happening was outside of the PHG. So they haven't had the renewal in a year, even though you know they should have because of the PHG. So there's groups that'll fall into that category. Uh, another strategy is tying multiple layers of service whether that's like a, a SNAP benefit with their Medicaid benefits to kind of capture those groups and find outliers. So yes, they're having to really stretch and look at their data throughout this process. And, and CMS is actually asking, will be asking for baseline data uh, as they move forward with their plans. So this is an exercise that all states who have utilized any aspect of the eligibility flexibilities will have to do at some level. 
So what is the current date for the end of the public health emergency and how has CMS been managing the determination of that date and communicating it to state Medicaid programs? So the public health emergency by law and it's part of the code of federal regulations is extended for 90 days at a time. It has to be in day increments by the Health and Human Services Secretary. And one of the ways that CMS has been communicating this to states is by letting them know that there's going to be at least 60 days notice when the public health emergency isn't going to be renewed. So this has all been very helpful information, Rachel and Ethan, and understanding we are in the middle of 2021. What should states do? How should they start and where do they need to prioritize their efforts? As you know, Ethan had mentioned earlier, CMS has provided two pending action resolution planning tools, essentially for the two different groups that they've identified, the eligibility enrollment, and then the SPAS waiver group. Within the planning tool, states are expected to adopt a risk-based approach to prioritize their COVID-related pending eligibility and enrollment actions. Some of those approaches that CMS has outlined include a population-based approach where states are prioritizing completing their outstanding eligibility actions based on individuals in a certain group who are no longer eligible, a time-based approach where states prioritize cases based on the length of time that they've been pending, or a hybrid approach where states are prioritizing using both a population-based and time-based approach. Finally, states have an option to use a state-developed approach where it's a homegrown effort where states can really prioritize and customize how they're going to address their outstanding eligibility work. And on that point, Rachel, I, I think I'd like to highlight the ability for states to kind of choose their own adventure, so to speak, and kind of picking the approach that works best for them. I mean, no one knows their own processes better than a specific state does. And I think that the state's own subject matter experts, they've got the knowledge. The real trick is pulling them all together. And I think that's where that kind of top-down approach comes into effect. But once you've kind of got that set up, really the next step for states to do is kind of I think set up their own uh, subwork groups that are kind of focused on all the individual areas that are kind of roll-ups of areas of impact related to any of these flexibilities, related to any of the systems changes that we've talked about, and really kind of get underway with the nuts and bolts of uh, setting back the clock, rewinding, taking us back to uh, the days before COVID. Well, I wanted to thank you both for your insights and information on this important work for state Medicaid agencies in 2021. Thank you so much for listening and please let us know what Medicaid topics you're interested in hearing more about. Thank you.